Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 115. I'm Jessica Duffin, I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only, and the information shared in this episode isn't intended to replace your current medical treatment. As always, I want to thank our first sponsor today, BU. These guys are the makers of the incredible period patches that I love and also a beautiful organic CBD range, menstrual cup and chafing cream. And they really are one of the pioneers of natural and really quite revolutionary period care, in my opinion. I have seen these period patches change people's experience of their periods so dramatically and their experience of endometriosis so dramatically. And they are really one of the first things that I recommend to my clients if my clients are going through a flare-up or it's taken a while for their symptoms to calm down and for us to implement changes. I still want to provide my clients with something that's going to provide relief, you know, in that current moment. And I always recommend BU period patches because I just believe in them so much and they have helped me so much and they're natural. And it's just when you are so commonly faced with all of these different drugs that can have side effects, um, they have their place, but sometimes you just want a more uh, side effect free option. So um, I absolutely love these patches. They've been helping me through a interstitial cystitis flare-up that I've been going through recently. You can find out all about that on Instagram. Um, and if you want to try the BU patches for yourself, you can just head to the link in my show notes or go straight to their website, which is buonline.co.uk. So that's b-e-y-o-u-online.co.uk. If you are in the US or in Canada, you can actually also order your BU patches from Cult Beauty and they will ship to the US or to Canada. So that's cultbeauty.co.uk. Let me know how you get on with them. And I just want to give a shout out to my other sponsors, Semaine Health, the lovely girls who came on the show before in the past. You may have heard their interview or heard some of their previous ads with me. Uh, you know I'm a big fan of this supplement. It's an anti-inflammatory supplement that contains some really wonderful nutrients and vitamins and minerals, including magnesium, curcumin, quercetin, and vitamin D3. And it's designed to take two days before your period and during your period to reduce pain and inflammation. And the response from the endometriosis community has been incredible. Just go to their website to see some of their testimonials. I love the supplement myself. Lots of my clients use the supplement and love it too. And I wanted to let you guys know that they've actually just reduced their subscription price to $28.99 as a result of everything that's going on with COVID and they're really trying to make their supplement as accessible as possible for everyone who needs it. So I wanted to let you guys know that that is now available. And if you're interested in getting hold of a jar, you can go to www.semainehealth.com and that's spelled S-E-M-A-I-N-E health.com. I'll put the link in my show notes. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by my Managing Endometriosis Naturally Guide. It is a 16 page, I believe it's 16 page, ebook giving you an overview of some of the basic 
tools and methods that you can use to get started with managing your endometriosis holistically. It's a combination of the information that I've learned as someone living with endometriosis, as a podcast host who's interviewed you know, countless experts in the world of endometriosis and as, at the time I wrote it as a student, but obviously now as a qualified health coach specializing in endometriosis. So I am going to be updating it um, at some point over the next couple of months. So this is a really good time to kind of get to know some of the methods and get started with it. And then when the new one comes out, you can upgrade. Um, Of course, it's for free. You can just download it via the link in the show notes and hopefully it will start to give you a roadmap for getting started with managing your endometriosis naturally. Oh, before I start, I also wanted to say that um, I didn't release this episode yesterday because it was my birthday. Um, So I was just having some time off social media and sharing bits and pieces. So um, I'm sorry about that. Um, But yeah, I hope that uh, you enjoy the show. So today is all about 10 root causes of bloating with endometriosis. I polled 600 of you last week and 92% said you wanted me to talk about this subject. Um, I also polled 550 of you and 96% of you said that endo belly was a problem for you and that you were living with it. And out of a poll of 536, only 40%, 48% of you had heard of SIBO. So I really wanted to start here. Today marks a series of a four-week series on root causes of endometriosis symptoms. And I really wanted to do this series because endometriosis is a multi-layered condition and there's not normally just one root cause of the symptoms that we present with but the problem is we believe that endometriosis is the root cause and that's where it ends and so we think we have to live with these symptoms and there's nothing we can do about them when in fact there's usually multiple kind of root causes of that symptom and endometriosis is only part of that or it's um, a contributing factor to those root causes so we can actually alleviate your symptoms. So that's why I think it's really important to do this sort of root cause episodes and then we can start diving into the kind of methods and treatment of management so that you actually can have a path so you can begin to work out what might be the roadmap for you. So bloating is one of the biggest problems in our community, but it's not impossible to treat. It's not about masking symptoms either. Restricting over time, like, you know, restricting your food usually just leads to more restriction if a root cause isn't fixed. So if you cut out histamines, over time you won't have to cut out oxalates. Your body is likely to get more sensitive because there's a root cause going on. If you leave it undetected, it's going to cause further problems with your digestion as time goes on. And of course, leaving a problem with your gut health could lead to further issues like nutrient deficiencies which can then lead to brain fog and so many so many issues so ideally we want to be exploring the root cause there may be a few but usually addressing one allows the other areas to improve and the rest will become easier so you kind of need to start with one of your key problems so for me okay I'm not tolerating histamine very well, but why am I not tolerating histamine very well? Because I have SIBO. So I need to start with a SIBO. I have leaky gut. I'm not digesting my nutrients properly. I have gut dysbiosis, but it all comes back to the SIBO. I can't really treat the others without treating the SIBO first. So 
you don't have to address these all at the same time. You just need to have a general understanding of what might be going on and begin with one area. Now, this episode isn't intended to overwhelm, this series of episodes isn't intended to overwhelm at all, but to actually move you from like a place of darkness to lightness. And what I mean by that is if you imagine, let's say your gut health and you've got like, I'm picturing like some sort of emoji characters here, but like your gut in a dark room and it's like really bloated and swollen and that's all you can see. This episode is about me turning on light bulbs over each root cause. So all of a sudden I'm turning a light bulb on over, about over SIBO and then I'm turning a light bulb on on gut dysbiosis and then I'm turning a light bulb on on leaky gut and bit by bit you're no longer just staring at your gut and thinking why aren't you working? You now have these options to start exploring. That doesn't mean all of them are gonna need to be explored for you at all. It might be that you recognize yourself in one of these root causes and you start down that road. This is about peeling off the layers. And like I said, starting with one area really helps with the other areas. And often some of them will resolve on their own as you address the others because the root cause is that, you know, the root cause is the SIBO. And then you might find yourself tolerating histamines better as a result. So if you can, try not to let root causes overwhelm you, but actually to realize that you're empowering yourself and educating yourself with information that you really likely haven't been shared all in one place before. We go to the doctors and, you know, they say like, oh, your bloating's just endo, or we don't know why you're bloating, or it's just gas. We're not really, or we're, it's IBS, and we're not really given any kind of solutions and idea or ideas as to why this is happening. So this is about empowering you with knowledge. So you, you can go out in the world and choose your personal path to healing, rather than being at the mercy of these kind of crumbs of information that you're getting every now and then from different doctors and, you know, that information clashes with that information from that doctor. So I really want you to see this as a tool for empowerment and to not think you have to do all this all in one go, but actually start. it's starting to give you an idea of how you can build your own personal roadmap for managing endometriosis. Okay, number one is SIBO, of course. SIBO stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And this occurs when normal bacteria, which should be in the large, um, large intestine, turns up in the small intestine. The reason why this is a problem is our small intestine isn't designed to house this bacteria. The bacteria, yes, is supposed to be in the large intestine. That's where bacteria play a role. But in the small intestine, there's only a tiny amount of bacteria that we're supposed to have there. And the role of the small intestine is to absorb most of our nutrients. Most of our nutrient absorption happens in the small intestine. So what occurs when we have SIBO is that our food is arriving in our small intestine and SIBO is eating our food. And what it does is as a result of eating our food, it releases gas, and this process is known as fermentation. And then as a result of the fermentation, bloating occurs. Now, you might think that this doesn't apply to you because you don't get gas, but what's really interesting is it's actually really common for people with SIBO not to have a lot of gas. 
And that's because one of the key reasons people develop SIBO is due to something called a slow migrating motor complex. So your migrating motor complex is a wave-like motion that occurs in your small intestine, in the walls of your small intestine. And this wave is like washing up the dishes. So you've finished your food, you've eaten your food, you've thrown some of the, you know, scraps into the bin, and now you're rinsing the plates. So with the small intestine, you've eaten your food, the food has now passed from the small intestine to the large intestine. And so now your migrating motor complex is rinsing off any of the kind of last bits of food, but mainly the bacteria that's been left over from the food. Now, when this gets damaged, which is the case with food poisoning or gastroenteritis, um, there are some other things that can damage the migrating motor complex, it slows down. And that allows for bacteria to start collecting in the small intestine. So once we have a slowed down migrating motor complex, the gas gets trapped there because it's not passing through quickly enough. So we blow. And also the bacteria, there's so much bacteria that it's just making much more gas than our body can actually cope with and, and pass through the system. And so therefore we blow. Now, research has shown that up to 80% of us with endo have SIBO. And I know there are a lot of doctors now saying that they believe it's up to 100%. And they've also found that the toxins that SIBO gives off have been found in the pelvic cavity in endometriosis patients. And so some of them are now debating that SIBO helps to develop endometriosis, but then we also know that adhesions from endometriosis can cause SIBO, so it's a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario right now, chicken or the egg scenario. So if you want to test or get more specifics on SIBO and the symptoms, see my show notes for articles and my podcast episodes, because I have done, guys, I've done countless articles on this now and podcast episodes because I'm specialized in SIBO because it was such a big problem in our community that as soon as I finished my endometriosis training, I realized that SIBO was just so prevalent that I needed to train in that as well. And I studied with one of the world's leading SIBO experts, um, one of the world's leading SIBO doctors, Dr. Alison Seebecker. So the information that I'm sharing is up to date and legitimate. Um, So it's a really good resource to go to. So I'm going to put all of the links in the show notes. I'm not going to dive into the details of every condition and every root cause that I'm talking about today because it's just going to be way too much information. We could do episodes on each and every one. So what I'm actually doing in this episode is giving you guys an overview so you can see whether you recognize yourself in any of these pictures. Okay, so number two is hormones. So A lot of my clients tell me they have bloating either around ovulation or towards their period. I mean, often as we start to dive deeper, they're like, well, actually, I have it all the time, but it gets worse around ovulation and towards their period. So in that case, I'm thinking, okay, they've got SIBO and they've got some hormonal imbalances. So often this bloating comes with other symptoms like heavy periods, clots, bad PMS, low moods, fatigue, breast tenderness, you know, around their period, or maybe ovulation is coming with a couple of hormonal symptoms as well. So these are signs of estrogen dominance. Estrogen dominance occurs when the ratio of progesterone to estrogen is imbalanced. So progesterone is either low, and as a result, estrogen is, you know, therefore higher than progesterone, or estrogen is 
high, so you have excess estrogen, even if so even if your progesterone levels are normal, you now have excess estrogen, which then of course that excess estrogen is dominating over, over progesterone. Or you could actually have low progesterone and excess estrogen, which then you've got this low estrogen, low progesterone and estrogen dominant scenario. So most of the time you're going to have estrogen dominance with some kind of low progesterone scenario, whether that's just low progesterone in relation to estrogen or actually overall low progesterone. Your progesterone is actually, you know, low in the body. So estrogen dominance can lead to water retention, which can result in bloating, especially in the PMS, in the premenstrual phase. So, you know, in your luteal phase, after you've ovulated and your body is preparing for your period. So this luteal phase is really where we get to see the consequence of estrogen dominance the most. And estrogen dominance can occur from blood sugar imbalances, chronic stress, or an acutely stressful period of time during, you know, during your cycle, constipation, because you really need to make sure that you're getting old estrogen out of your body on a daily basis. Um, exposure to hormone disrupting chemicals, so BPA, dioxins, phthalates, there are many different chemicals that have now been linked to hormonal disruption, especially estrogen, and um, have been linked to endometriosis. So those are just some of the ways that lifestyle and nutrition um, and environment can affect our hormones. But really, like I said, some of the key ways are blood sugar, stress, constipation, and exposure to hormone disrupting chemicals. Those are some of the most common ones that I see with my clients and reportedly with most clinicians that I know and in my training. So if you want to learn more about the symptoms of estrogen dominance, so you can recognize the symptoms and what might be causing it and how to manage it and how to alleviate it, then have a listen to my interviews with Nicole Jardim, Megan Hallett, Crystal Curtin and my solo interview uh, and my solo episodes on the subject. So I'll put them in the show notes. I also really recommend having a look at my endometriosis news articles because I do a lot around blood sugar balancing and hormones in there. So I'll put them in my show notes again. Okay, number three. Number three is leaky gut, which is also known as intestinal permeability. So if you think about your intestines, your gut wall travels from the opening of your mouth right up until your anus. And what that is, is a cell thick, one cell thick, very thin layer of tissue, almost like a sausage skin that's encased in everything. So if you think about a sausage, if you think about your small intestine, imagine it looking like a sausage. On the inside is the sausage meat. The exterior, the skin is your gut wall. And like I said, this gut wall is one cell thick. It's made up of cells that are very, very closely knitted together. They do have gaps between them, but these gaps are minute and they're only there to allow nutrients through. Now, what can happen is over time, when exposed to irritants, these gaps can start to widen. The gut wall, the integrity becomes impaired, becomes compromised. And so there are now gaps that are allowing larger food particles to pass through, bacteria, pathogens, other things that shouldn't be passing through. On the other side of your gut wall, 
is your immune system and your bloodstream. So your immune system is basically like an army ready to attack anything that shouldn't be there. And so when it releases natural killer cells or other cells that are going to attack these allergens, these things that shouldn't be there, because the bloodstream, like the immune system is right on that bloodstream, the inflammation, the reaction just spreads throughout the body. And so you may feel that in symptoms such as headaches, achy joints, rashes, swelling in the body, all of these different symptoms that you may think are have nothing to do with your gut. But what's occurring is you're eating something, let's say it's a piece of bread, the particles are going to your small intestine, and now larger particles of bread are passing from your gut into your gut wall, through the other side, hitting the immune system. The immune system is reacting with all of this inflammation and this immune reaction, which is spreading throughout the body. And then you get all of this pain. You might get pain in your pelvis. You might get pain in your joints. You might get rashes around your eyes. You might start vomiting. You're having an immune reaction. And this can lead to food sensitivities, IBS issues, inflammation, intolerances over time. And of course, IBS issues like bloating and gas. So you may have been fine with a certain food, but you found that over time you can't tolerate it anymore. This could be because your body has continued to fight that food that you're eating every day because it's passing through into the gut wall. And now your body's developed an antigen against it. It's actually developed its own form of attack for that food. So you're always going to react. So of course, healing leaky gut is one of our key priorities. Now, leaky gut in itself isn't the root cause. Leaky gut is caused by something. And the causes of leaky gut include celiac disease, SIBO, food sensitivities that we didn't really know about and we continue to eat. And so over time, that irritation aggravation has affected the gut lining. Long-term stress, alcohol can cause leaky gut. Gluten can cause leaky gut antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, NSAIDs, uh, so painkillers, and infection. These can all and have been shown to cause leaky gut in research. So healing can be fairly quick, can be a matter of weeks. Um, I think there's even studies showing seven days. You know, it's fairly quick if there's not an underlying infection like SIBO. But you do need to identify the root cause, um, and it might be that there are multiple ones and it might take you a while to be able to swap over from, say you're taking a lot of NSAIDs to deal with your pain, it might be a case of, okay, I'm going to trial some semaine supplements, I'm going to trial taking ginger every day, I'm going to try take trial taking curcumin, fish oil, and adopting an anti-inflammatory diet for three months so that I can move off NSAIDs and heal my gut. You know, it might be something along those lines. It really depends what's going on for you. So I'm going to link to... Dr. Ruscio's article on leaky gut, because I think it's brilliant. He is a gut health expert, and I think that his breakdown of leaky gut, his explanation of what can help and what can irritate is really, really helpful. And also a lot of the studies that I've just mentioned, the research into NSAIDs and alcohol and gluten with leaky gut are all in that article. So it's just a nice, concise place for you to go. I'm also going to link to my podcast episodes on healing the endo belly because a lot of the protocols in that are around healing your leaky gut. And keep listening because I'm now going to cover 
some of those other conditions that actually cause leaky gut in the first place. So there you will be helpful as well. And like I said, leaky gut really isn't the root cause here. It's a root cause with a root cause behind it. So a lot, if you address, for example, celiac disease, if you get diagnosed with celiac disease or you get diagnosed with SIBO, your gut is going to start repairing as you address that. Okay, so number four is celiac disease. So research has actually found an association between celiac disease and endo, as well as similarities between the two diseases. And just to give you a bit more information on this, research has found that people with celiac disease were nearly twice as likely to develop endo, especially within the first year following their diagnosis of celiac. And then people with endometriosis were also found to be significantly more likely to develop celiac disease as well as other autoimmune conditions. And to kind of support that, to show that actually potentially taking gluten out of the diet could be helpful, a study found that 75% of women with endometriosis had decreased symptoms when they eliminated gluten for 12 months. And I have to say, I, I eat small amounts of gluten I mean, you guys have heard me talk about this again and again, but, you know, I'll have a small amount of gluten in my ovulation phase, like maybe I have some sourdough toast at the weekend, or maybe a croissant or something, and I can get away with that and be fine. But I feel, I still feel better if I'm completely without gluten. Now, I have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. My brother and sister have celiac disease. Whether or not I'm going to develop celiac disease is yet to be seen, and I am going to get retested. But clearly, my body doesn't do well on gluten, so I have to keep it fairly out of my diet. So if you're not sure what celiac disease is or how it differs from non-celiac gluten sensitivity or intolerance, celiac disease is a severe reaction to gluten. When gluten is eaten, the body mistakenly attacks the gut lining rather than just the gluten itself. It sees them as similar cells. And not only does this cause nutrient deficiencies and long-term difficulties, it also causes, of course, IBS issues and bloating, and it can be really severe. So my brother, um, even if he has cross-contamination, so if a restaurant accidentally uses the same chopping board um, or opens a bag of flour in the vicinity that my brother's food is being made, he can be hospitalized for it. Um, it's very, very severe. So I've linked to NHS guidance um, in the show notes you can get tested on the NHS for celiac disease. You can get tested privately. I would imagine in the US that most celiac disease tests are covered by insurance because it's such a kind of standard condition that they test for. So I'm going to link to a couple of places you can do that privately if you need to. One thing I will say is that you do have to be eating gluten before you take the test and you have to be eating quite a significant amount, which does make doing the test difficult if you know that it doesn't kind of work well for you and your gut. But you're not going to get a proper test result if you're not eating gluten. And if your doctor doesn't mention this, I would get a second opinion. Because if a doctor's testing you without finding out if you're eating gluten or not, I just, they're just, in my opinion, they're not doing it properly. So just be cautious when getting tested and make sure you're following the protocol correctly before doing that.
Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in. So you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. So if you know you're due on, you might want to start wearing your period patch 24 hours beforehand just so that your muscles begin to relax and you're less likely to have really bad cramps. To find out more about BU, you can just head to link in my show notes or go to www.buonline.co.uk. five is low digestive enzymes and low stomach acid. You guys have heard me talk about this before in my episodes on um, understanding the endo belly part one, two, and three. I'm going to recap here. So digestive enzymes are enzymes in the gut that break down food and help to absorb nutrients. They are pivotal guys, like absolutely pivotal to nutrient absorption and digestion and a lack of them is one of the key reasons that I've had nutrient deficiencies this year because I don't have enough enzymes in my gut. So if you don't have enough, larger particles of food will pass through the small intestine where the majority of your nutrient absorption happens and the bacteria that lives in the large intestine following the small intestine gets more food to eat. So the food should have been broken down by the stomach and the small in- the digestive enzymes. The nutrients should have been absorbed. What's left over is almost fully waste by this point, nearly. And there shouldn't be a huge amount for the bacteria to be consuming in the large intestine. And so you're now getting this food that's much harder to break down. It's hanging around longer in the large intestine bacteria is able to get to the food and of course this is going to cause fermentation, bloating and other IBS issues and also the gut is just not designed to process lumps of food like that, undigested food like that so of course it's going to cause discomfort as it passes through the body. And so on the other hand we also have low stomach acid. So the uh, term for this is hypochlorhydria and after your food is swallowed it arrives in your stomach and this is where it sort of pulverized to a mush so that enzymes can do their job in the next part of the journey in the small intestine. So the stomach acid in the stomach plays this role here. It helps to pulverize and break down the food that's just arrived from your mouth. And protein in particular is broken down here and also the beginning of the absorption of B12 is is, uh, done here too. So if you don't have enough stomach acid, you might have issues with low protein. Some signs of low protein are bendy, brittle, weak nails um, and hair loss, just as um, an example. And obviously uh, B12 deficiency signs are brain fog, chronic fatigue, tingling in your hands and feet. Um, You can get obviously um, tested for both and you can go to your doctors to get that checked out. So if you don't have enough stomach acid, the same problem is going to occur as with low digestive enzymes. So you're going to have larger particles of food traveling through your gut so that more bacteria, so bacteria is getting fed more um, and is able to take more time on that food and fermenting it. Additionally, stomach acid kills off bacteria as it enters the gut. So not only do you have poor digestion from this these larger kind of amounts of food, you also have bacteria entering, causing more fermentation, 
and an imbalance of bacteria, which causes IBS issues as well. So you're going to get bloating from both of these problems. So low stomach acid can be caused by stress, chronic stress, pain, chronic pain, fatigue, proton pump inhibitors, which they often put people on because someone has acid reflux. um, And so they think it's because they have got too much acid. But actually, there is research now showing, I think it's 60%, I want to say 60% of people with acid reflux, it's actually occurring because they have low stomach acid and their, their stomach is basically working overtime and pumping the stomach to make more stomach acid and it's sort of pushing it up into your esophagus. It's not because you have too much. It's because your body's working so hard to try and get more to be made. So these proton pump inhibitors then cause more problems because they're lowering your stomach acid even more. Um, And so now bacteria is able to enter in and you're not breaking down your food properly. And proton pump inhibitors are one of those kind of root causes of SIBO. They can tip you over into developing SIBO if you also have, for example, migrating motor complex problems or adhesions around your gut. And of course, SIBO can cause low stomach acid as well. That is a classic sign if you have low stomach acid or acid reflux. So causes of low digestive enzymes include celiac disease, leaky gut, chronic stress, chronic pain, food sensitivities and SIBO to name just a few. So um, there's a lot of crossover there with both of them. Often if you've got low stomach acid, I I mean, I normally see both. I normally see kind of low stomach acid and low, low digestive enzymes, but that's not to say you can't have one without the other. And I am going to link to my episodes on understanding the endo belly. Yeah, I'm going to link to those too because they're going to be really helpful for understanding this further and for knowing how you can test for these two and how you can support your body whilst your body's healing to actually make more stomach acid and make more digestive enzymes. Okay, so number six is candida and other infections, parasites, and fungi. So candida is a yeast or fungus that we have naturally in the body in a healthy amount. The problem occurs when we actually have candida overgrowth, which can cause oral and vaginal thrush. So that's that's what is behind your thrush. So you might hear someone say like, oh, you have a candida overgrowth. And that's basically when they, you know, say if you've got an itchy vagina, that is thrush in your vagina. So a candida overgrowth won't just affect the your uh, mouth or your vagina, but can also affect the whole body, especially the gut. And candida overgrowth in the gut can cause bloating and gas, as well as a wide range of other symptoms like headaches and chronic fatigue. It's actually not a very nice condition to have in the body. Um, and it goes under the radar quite a bit. There are also other fungi that can grow in the gut, and infections and parasites and worms, which can all cause IBS issues, including bloating. The causes vary, such as exposure to the bacteria or that parasite. But in the in the case of candida, causes include long-term birth control use, excessive high carbs, sugar and alcohol, because it really feeds the yeast, chronic stress, and long-term antibiotic exposure. You can get tested for pretty much all of these with a test called the GI map, which is really expensive, but it's very comprehensive. 
you could probably just get a straight up candy to test if that's the only one you want to test for. Um, and I imagine that will be cheaper. I'll see if I can find you guys one, at least in the UK. Sometimes the searches don't come up for me for ones in the US, um, but I'll see if I can find one. Um, it's always preferable to work with someone, but there are over-the-counter candida treatments. Um, and I'll link to those in the show notes, but I strongly, 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 strongly advise you to consult a doctor or a practitioner before taking them and letting them know that you're doing that. Ideally, working alongside them. Getting rid of candida can be really rough. You can get something called die-off, um, which is when the candida is dying. Uh, it releases toxins and then it can make your symptoms worse. In the meantime, whilst it's dying, it doesn't necessarily mean you should stop. You might need to lower your dose. You might need to bring in some other supportive um, supplements to help you through. So I just really recommend you either follow a protocol from a course, patient course, a patient book, or in the best case scenario, you work with an expert or a doctor. I'll put some links into the show notes for you to do some further uh, exploration on that. Okay, number seven is stress and rushing. As you can probably tell, stress causes a host of digestive problems, but it can also directly affect digestion by turning digestion off. To digest food, you need to be in a state known as the rest and digest mode. And this is when your parasympathetic nervous system is turned on. However, your stress response comes from your sympathetic nervous system, and you can't be in both states at the same time. The sympathetic nervous system will always shut down the parasympathetic nervous system because it's essential for our survival. It helps keep us alive. And so if you think about in like caveman days, when we were in a tribe, if we were being threatened by another tribe, for example, it would be the sympathetic nervous system that would kick in. It would be that flight or fight mode that would kick in and keep us alive. Your body doesn't care that you just ate something in that case. It's like, we need to get the hell out of here or we need to attack. And so your parasympathetic nervous system is turned off in that case. Your digestion is turned off. And also your healing as well, because that's what that part of your nervous system is responsible for. So unfortunately, the body doesn't have a scale of risk. So you're either at risk or you're not. It won't be able to tell the difference between a tribe going to attack us and missing your train, right? Or feeling um, a bit stressed out about your friend's wedding coming up. So your flight or fight response is turned on by a number of very everyday occurrences, including rushing your food, rushing in general, being in pain, having inflammation in your body, infection, blood sugar imbalance, and of course, actual emotional stress, over-exercising. So there are multiple things that can turn on this stress response. And we're not in the habit of learning how to turn it off. But that is really what we need to be doing in this day and age because trying to avoid all of these stresses is not necessarily possible at all times. We, you know, of course, we want to be having blood sugar balance. We want to be lowering our inflammation. We want to not rush our food and actually take our time with our food. But also, we can practice lowering our cortisol levels and our stress response levels on a daily basis ideally multiple times a day, they've actually shown that meditation, breath work, and yoga 
takes us out of the flight or fight response and puts us into the rest and digest mode. So even if it's just a couple of breaths before your meal to take you out of that stress mode, maybe it's about doing like three minutes of meditation, morning, lunch, and dinner, or, you know, yoga on a Friday. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's small guys, just get into the habit of lowering your cortisol levels. I promise you, as I explore these root causes further with these future episodes, you're going to see how important this one practice is, no matter how small it is. If you're even just doing one minute of breathing twice a day, beautiful. I love it. Um, Just start somewhere. I'm going to link to my episodes on the endo belly because I go into this in much more detail, kind of discussing rushing your food, rushing chewing, um, and how that can affect your gut health. So have a listen to those. But the short of it is, if you're stressed, if you're rushing, if you're in the flight or fight response for any reason, your digestion is going to be turned off when you're eating. So you might be chewing, but your gut can't digest the food. So then you've got this food sitting in your stomach, big lumps of food that aren't breaking down properly and will, of course, lead to IBS issues like bloating and gas. So number eight is adhesions and endometriosis. So kind of obvious. um, And this is really twofold. So I'm going to start with endometriosis itself. So those lesions, those endometriosis patches that we get, you know, we might get excised during surgery, they're seen by the body as wounds and cause inflammation, which creates swelling and scarring, which could in part contribute to the bloating. Though I personally don't think it would cause like a huge amount on its own. I think there is likely something else that's making it you know, when I see pictures of someone with a huge balloon blown up stomach, like mine can get like six months, I wouldn't imagine that it's just the lesions doing that on their own. That doesn't mean to say that it's not endometriosis doing it on its own, but I don't think it would just be the lesions on its own. However, having said that, if you had really, really extensive lesions, maybe, potentially, um, you know, I'm not a surgeon, so maybe they would have more to say on that. So secondly, adhesions are a result of scarring. So whether it's from the endo lesions themselves, surgery or trauma, adhesions are tissue that's trying to knit together to form sort of like a webbing to heal a wounded area. The problem is that they can continue to grow and attach to organs and other surfaces within the body, and they then distort the shape of the intestine and even cause loops and even blockages resulting in a buildup of food, bacteria, gas, stores, etc. And long term that can actually cause SIBO. But I think you can imagine that if these adhesions are a result of the endometriosis itself, I think those combined with the lesions could potentially cause that kind of level of bloating if they're like around the intestines or even just pulling the intestines in a certain direction that could cause a you know buildup of gas, food, stools, etc. And so what we want to address is firstly, if you do have extensive endometriosis and surgery feels like the right option for you, then obviously the gold standard of, of surgery is excision surgery, where the lesions are actually cut 
out from the root rather than just burn off leaving cells and the root behind. So make sure that you go for a good doctor in that case. And I recommend to everyone to listen to my interview with Dr. Andrew Cook. He's a world leading endometriosis specialist and surgeon. And then in terms of the adhesions, you may not know that you have the adhesions there. Guys, adhesions are so strong. It's insane. And they can cause so many problems. And unfortunately, they do develop in 80 to 100% of abdominal surgery cases. So in order to address those, we need to see people who are able to identify adhesions. They cannot show up in scans, unfortunately, because adhesions are made up of collagen and that doesn't show up in scans, MRIs, that kind of thing. So we want to find a trained therapist who can feel for adhesions and feel whether the area is tight and sort of frozen together. You've heard me talk about clear passage before. That's a form of visceral manipulation which targets adhesions and has been shown in research to help placebo and endometriosis and infertility, but it's really not cheap. It's about £4,000, I think, here, $5,000 in the US, um, but it's wonderful. I'm going to, I haven't tried it. I wish I could try it, but I haven't tried it yet. I can't afford that. I'm going to link to a couple of interviews with the couple who founded it and fascinating interview and just sound like a lovely couple. Um, hoping to have them on the show next year. And then there are other forms of visceral manipulation, which essentially is massage for breaking down these adhesions and freeing the organs. So Laura Mercier, I think is her name. Uh, she developed the Mercier therapy method, and that is a form of visceral manipulation for people with pelvic pain conditions um, and gynecological conditions. So I'll link to an interview with her. And I'm also going to link to an interview on visceral manipulation in general. And I'm just thinking if there's anything else I want to link to you guys. I think those are good places to start. You don't have to listen to all of them. One of them will be fine. But we really want to start addressing those adhesions. And this is crucial if you have SIBO and endometriosis. It's one of the best things that we can do to aid your recovery from SIBO. So I highly recommend looking into those. Okay, number nine is histamine intolerance. So we talked a lot about the association between allergies, histamine, and endometriosis in recent podcast episodes. So you can go back to those and I'll link in the show notes again. Now, to be honest, I don't see bloating listed everywhere in all of the kind of histamine resources, but I do see bloating listed in some places and I see a lot of my histamine intolerant clients as well as myself as having bloating. Now, I guess the issue is, well, is the bloating really from the histamine or is it from a root cause that's causing the histamine intolerance? We can't be sure with every case, but there are experts listing bloating as a symptom of histamine intolerance. So I'm going to keep it here, especially as the symptoms of histamine intolerance are vast reaching. And they do include things like diarrhea, vomiting, rashes, headaches, migraines, racing heart, low blood blood pressure, there's a lot, extensive symptoms of histamine intolerance. So this can become a problem because the gut breaks down histamines with the use of particular enzymes. If for some reason the gut is lacking these, or if the body is producing too much histamine, you may get a buildup of histamine in the body resulting in anything from one of those allergic reactions that I mentioned, and that might include bloating. 
And histamine problems can arise from mast cell activation syndrome. So that's when the white blood cells which release histamines, known as mast cells, are too sensitive and easily triggered. Or it could also occur because the body is making too much histamine. So we know that people with interstitial cystitis have higher levels of mast cells in their bladder, not all of them, but some. We know that endometriosis cells release histamine as well. SIBO can also cause, uh, to, can make histamines too. But SIBO can also impair the gut so that it can no longer break down histamines as well. It can actually lower those enzymes that I mentioned earlier on. So I recommend doing further research because there are multiple factors, including things like stress. And so I've linked in the show notes if you need to research histamines and histamine intolerance further. You can just go back a couple of episodes. I've got a lot of um, episodes on histamine at the moment. And I've also got a couple of articles. So just check my show notes for further information. Number 10 is gut dysbiosis. So you've probably heard people talking about good bugs and bad bugs in your gut, or maybe you've heard someone mention gut flora. In your gut, you have a huge amount of bacteria, all different types, which serve various roles in the body and in the gut. These bacteria are absolutely vital for our health, and we need a certain balance for optimum health, though the exact balance isn't actually 100% clear yet because bacteria vary from household to household and we're also different that they actually haven't found what the best kind of ratio of bacteria is. So what we do know is that some bacteria need to be kept in check and imbalance allows those bacteria to actually thrive in larger quantities than they should and opportunistic bacteria so bad bacteria can then thrive in the gut um, and the beneficial healthy bacteria can become lowered or even bacteria that is healthy in certain amounts when it's in a higher amount becomes a problem and gut dysbiosis can cause IBS problems including bloating but it can also affect our immune system, it can also affect our mental health. Gut dysbiosis is really wide reaching and it can be caused by multiple issues, but common kind of root causes are frequent antibiotic use, medication, stress, high sugar diets, stomach bugs, SIBO, to name a few. So those are you know, some of the most common root causes. And a lot of the things that I've just mentioned will probably be like a lot of the root causes are probably going to be associated with some kind of level of gut dysbiosis. You won't necessarily have to directly address the gut dysbiosis in the beginning in terms of adding in probiotics. You might need to sort of kill off the bad bugs like treating SIBO or candida um, or whichever overgrowth is going on first before you start repairing. And I'm going to link to a couple of articles on this so you can learn more about how to look after your gut microbiome. Okay, so those are the top 10 root causes for bloating with endometriosis. Now that's not a definitive exhaustive list because uh, there are many root causes of bloating, but these are ones that I know affect my clients, the ones that I've trained in, the ones that we know from the research are commonly associated with endometriosis. So these are really good starting points. And I will say that you'll probably see some themes here, stress, antibiotic use, 
NSAIDs, adhesion, SIBO, chronic pain, these can all contribute to problems with the gut. So even just simple lifestyle changes like getting regular visceral manipulation and lowering your stress levels with some yoga and breath work can make a massive difference to your bloating. Don't overlook those simple changes. Honestly, it doesn't always have to be complicated, I promise. If you're not eating enough fiber from vegetables and you're not drinking enough water and you're not, you know, going to the toilet every day, it could just be that, that you're constipated and you don't have enough fiber in you right now. It could be as simple as that. It doesn't have to be something as complex as SIBO. But if it is, then this, I hope, has given you an insight and has turned on some light bulbs so you can actually see for once the options that are in front of you rather than rooting around in the dark and wondering why the hell do you still have bloating even though you've just had excision surgery or you don't get endo pain at the moment. I really hope that this is helpful for you in terms of starting to piece together a roadmap. So you're going to have lots of resources in your show notes. I'm going to break these subjects down further in my course that's coming out in January as well. If that you know, if you want to work with someone on this and have a little bit more guidance, but hopefully these resources that I put in the show notes are going to be a great start for you as well. And of course, don't forget to download my guide to managing endometriosis holistically, because that's going to have lots of helpful tips as well for you to build your own roadmap. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. 